This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. On today's episode, we'll hear Jesus promise to give one sign to his detractors, the sign of Jonah. Then he goes on to make reference to another Old Testament figure, the Queen of Sheba. This language may be mystifying for us. It was for me for a lot of my life. But it wasn't for the Jewish leaders of his time. And in fact, these verses show Jesus kind of taking the gloves off in a new way, a new way that will lead directly to his downfall. Because in the upcoming episodes, we are going to hit some major milestones in Jesus's story. And in kind of a, we're going to hit the turning point between his peaceful coexistence with the Jewish leaders and the moment at which it's all going to start to unravel. And so here's the gospel in Matthew 12, verse 38. The demand for a sign. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He said to them in reply, An evil and unfaithful generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. At the judgment, the men of Nineveh will arise with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and there is something greater than Jonah here. At the judgment, the Queen of the South will arise with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and there is something greater than Solomon here. That's the end of what we'll read for starters, but this gospel is a giant turning point in the story of Jesus, and there are some fascinating things to note about it right off the bat. First, it represents Jesus predicting his resurrection even before he predicted his passion and death. We'll see about that in a minute. Second, it represents Jesus doubling down on the fact that even though he emerges from a Jewish context, his victory is going to be among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world. And third, he's claiming to be a bigger deal than some of the biggest deal figures in Jewish history, something that he will continue to do later, as we will see. This comes at the climax of Jesus' run-ins with the Jewish people over some crazy things he was saying. He was saying that he was the bread of life come down from heaven and the people would have to eat his flesh to inherit eternal life. He was telling them that the Pharisees' practices were unnecessary. And he was healing people left and right as he said all of that. The passage we read today starts with the Pharisees saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answers that an evil and unfaithful generation seeks a sign. Evil and unfaithful is a very harsh claim. In the Jewish context, it's even more harsh. He's equating them with the worst of Jewish history, eras like the one that deserved that great zinger that comes at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own sight. Uh, So that's kind of what he's describing when he calls them an evil generation. 
Israel is also an unfaithful generation, he says. Remember, Israel is meant to be the faithful spouse of God, and the whole world is meant to be impressed by what they see in Israel, which, as we will see, was often very much the case. But when it is evil and unfaithful, Jesus is basically calling it a prostitute or a cheating wife or a scheming wife who's flirting with other gods, with demons. And that's really bad. So the people want a sign. This is a little bit like a spouse always asking the other spouse to prove he is worthy of their love. Imagine you came home and your husband or wife said, show me why I should pay any attention to you at all. Well, that's tough. What sign can you give? You're married. You made a vow. And imagine you have a decent relationship where you've given your spouse everything that you own and held nothing back. And your money is your spouse's. Your spouse's children are yours. Your efforts for each other are for each other. And then your spouse demands a sign to prove that you love them. Well, what are you supposed to do? Of course, Jesus has already given them all kinds of signs, the multiplication of the loaves, the healing of so many people, the casting out of demons, and the resurrection of Jairus' daughter and a widow's son from the dead. And of course, Jesus will give them a further sign, just like you would if your spouse demanded a sign, I guess. Fair or not, you would probably try to come up with some way to say, okay, sure, here's how I love you. But, he tells them, the sign he will give them is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah turns out to be a huge deal. In this gospel passage from Matthew, he adds, Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So let's go over the story of Jonah briefly. So Jonah was told, he, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet who's mentioned briefly in Chronicles, I think, and he's kind of one of the prophets who's just trying to please the king and not doing what God says. So he's not a stellar prophet. But in, in the book of Jonah, he's told to go to the city of Nineveh to preach against it. So God is telling him to go speak to the pagans and tell them that they're all wrong. It'd be the equivalent of him telling us to go to, I don't know, Las Vegas or, you know, some denizen of sin in a foreign country and tell them that everything they're doing is wrong. So instead, in the story, and this is told in a very um, minimal way, but Jonah takes off for Tarshish. Basically, he's heading to as far away from Nineveh as he can go. So the Lord who, as we know, brings storms into our lives to heal us, hurled a storm against Jonah's boat, and when the boat was about to be destroyed, the crew of strangers who were running the boat didn't know what was going on, so they figured out some way to determine who was the problem. I think they cast lots, and they discovered that it's Jonah God was angry at. This is a remarkable instance, by the way, of how in the eyes of the Old Testament, God doesn't only speak to his own chosen people. God speaks to strangers on pagan ships as well, in this case. Jonah acknowledges that the storm is there because of him and asks to be thrown into the sea to appease God. The ship's crew agree to do so, but they utter a very strange prayer that Christians might find resonates with us a little bit. They pray, quote, 
Please, O Lord, do not let us perish for taking this man's life. Do not charge us with shedding innocent blood, for you, Lord, have accomplished what you desired. Then they throw Jonah into the sea as a kind of an offering, an expiation for sin, if you will, and it works. The sea stops raging, just like it did when the apostles called on God on the Sea of Galilee. So here's what the book of Jonah says after that at the beginning of chapter 2. But the Lord sent a great whale to swallow Jonah, and he remained in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the womb of Sheol I cried for help, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and flood enveloped me. End quote. So Jonah is in the belly of this whale for three days and three nights. It's called a whale. Sometimes it's called a fish. The two terms were not biologically accurate at the time. It was a big sea creature. But his prayer probably says something a little bit more. He says he was in shale, in other words, in the land of the dead. Many people, notably Brant Petrie in our day, take that to mean that Jonah died in the whale. The fathers of the church are inclined to call it a miracle where he stayed alive in the belly of the whale. Apologetic sites like Catholic Answers point out that if it is a miracle, it's not an entirely unprecedented one. In 1891, James Bartley went missing during a whale hunt and was found the next day in the whale alive, albeit for a lot less than three nights. I accept either theory, both the theory that God kept Jonah alive in a miraculous way for a long period of time, uh, long compared to James Bartley, or that Jonah died and rose, literally. After all, it wouldn't be the only resurrection prophecy in the Bible. I'll share some others in a minute. But I love the point Brant Petrie makes. What happens after Jonah is vomited onto the shore? The book of Jonah says it this way, quote, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the message to it that I tell you. End quote. The first word spoken to Jonah is arise, or kum, the same word Jesus used to speak to Jairus' daughter when he commanded her to rise from the dead. But let's look at the rest of the story here. Jonah was either dead or as good as dead for three days and three nights, but Even after that, Jonah wouldn't believe God. In the same way, the Pharisees won't believe God even after Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, one of their own leaders in the Jewish community. Then Jesus tells them, The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment and condemn the people living today, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. So if Jonah had no excuse but to follow Jesus, neither do the Pharisees. And, it must be pointed out, neither do we. We don't have any excuse. Bishop uh, Robert Barron likes to point out how minimally Jonah followed the command of the Lord, simply passing through the city and speaking the message of the Lord, which was, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what does the book say happened? The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. End quote. So the reaction to Jonah's message is remarkable. And it's clear that it's not the power of Jonah that made this message so effective. 
It's the power of God who decided for whatever reason to work through Jonah and who decides for whatever reason to work through us. But what's Jonah's reaction? He's actually angry at God that this has happened. He would much rather that the people of Nineveh be condemned. This is exactly what Jesus will later accuse the Pharisees of when he gives them seven woes. And I'm paraphrasing these. He'll say, woe to you, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, you work hard to add to your numbers, not to change hearts. Woe to you, you value wealth more than the temple. Woe to you, you tithe but tolerate injustice. Woe to you, you follow external observances but remain unchanged. Woe to you, you are whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside and dead inside. Woe to you, you honor the prophets that you yourself killed, and you cut off those like them. The men of Nineveh reacted to Jonah after his descent to Sheol better than the religious leaders of his time will react to Jesus after his descent to the heart of the earth, his descent to hell, a descent which began when he took sin unto himself on Holy Thursday, continued in the tomb on Good Friday, and reached its culmination with his harrowing of hell on Holy Saturday. See the difference between the Pharisees here and the interactions with Jesus and his apostles, especially Peter. As we will see in upcoming episodes, Peter's literal name is Simon, son of Jonah, and he's a son of Jonah in more ways than one. The first time Peter saw Jesus' miraculous powers at the enormous catch of fish, he wanted to avoid his call from Jesus. So he said, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Like Peter, Jonah also crouched in a boat to avoid his call. But then, again, like Peter, He identified his own sin as the real problem. He said, take me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. Both men were admirable for their humility and less than admirable for their lack of courage. The Pharisees, on the other hand, have no humility, and they have the wrong kind of courage. In Jonah's place, you get the sense that they would not have recognized their own sinfulness and would not have allowed themselves to be thrown into the sea to quiet it. But then again, you get the sense from what they say that they would not have hesitated at all to go and condemn the people of Nineveh in the first place. They love condemning people. But they did it against the wishes of God. Their condemnations were not what God asked. They were against what God asked. Or for another relevant example comparing Jonah and Peter, you can look at the two storms Peter was in, of course. Jonah sank into the stormy sea and prayed to be saved, and God saved him. Well, isn't that exactly what happened to Peter twice? Once he prayed, save us or we perish, and another time he prayed, Lord, if it is really you, let me come to you across the waters, and then cried for help when he sank, only to be pulled up out of the waves by Jesus. Peter also has a very different vision from what the Pharisees have. Jesus tells Peter, He wants to make him a fisher of men, and Peter is totally on board with that. He's a blue-collar guy, a fisherman, and he will be a blue-collar apostle, a guy who feeds the Lord's sheep. Jonah eventually agrees to the same job. He is a prophet who has spoken with kings, but now he's supposed to be sent to a town of pagan sinners and learns the hard way that he has to speak exactly what the Lord wants him to say to them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, don't want to mix with the great unwashed of their time, literally, 
They refuse to mix with people who haven't washed their hands in a very specific way. But Jesus wants to tell them with the sign of Jonah that this won't fly anymore. He tells it with the next part of the gospel that we read also. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, At the judgment, the queen of the south will arise with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and there is something greater than Solomon here. He's telling them that not only will the pagan Ninevites be greater than them, but so will the queen of Sheba. Her story is told in 2 Chronicles and 1 Kings. It's a great story, and it's beautiful that Jesus mentions her and announces that she's in heaven, I guess, since she's going to be called on to judge them. Anyway, in the original story in the Old Testament, she came from a distant kingdom, either near Ethiopia or from India. But at any rate, she's a powerful woman and most likely a black woman. She has heard all about Solomon's wisdom and has traveled miles and miles to hear him, bringing camels and gifting Solomon with spices that they'd never seen before and gold. The Magi in the earlier Matthew story were not kings, but she certainly was a very powerful queen. After all, she's called not a queen of Sheba, but the queen of Sheba. That means she's more like what we think of the three kings than the three kings themselves are. Anyway, the story says, She came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. In other words, she asked Solomon difficult questions just like the Pharisees will do to Jesus, only she was seeking wisdom and they were only seeking to trip him up. Here again is a biblical example calculated to make the Pharisees mad. Or to put that in a better way, it's a biblical example that strikes at the heart of what the Pharisees needed to hear and what was most challenging for them to hear. Think of those seven woes I spoke about. In them, Jesus says the Pharisees will go to the ends of the earth to gain a convert. Contrast that with the Queen of Sheba, who came from the ends of the earth to convert herself. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of valuing the gold of the temple more than the wisdom the temple delivers. And he accuses them of tithing but not changing their hearts. But the Queen of Sheba admired Solomon's temple greatly. She was overwhelmed by it but even added to its gold, and she mostly admired Solomon's wisdom and asked him questions to add to her own wisdom. And now Jesus says that the Queen of Sheba will arise and judge the Pharisees because she will be in God's favor and they won't. And something else he said probably struck another suggestive chord with the Pharisees, especially after he called them an adulterous generation. They must have known that the passage about the Queen of Sheba came in 1 Kings 10, and this beautiful foreign queen who looks to Israel for wisdom is immediately contrasted in 1 Kings 11 with the many foreign wives Solomon married and how he started to follow his wives' gods when he was old. 1 Kings 11 verse 9, in fact, says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And he adds that next, 
I will not tear the whole kingdom from your successor, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Ouch. So right after his meeting with the queen of Sheba, who admired his wisdom, we hear that Solomon darkened his wisdom for the sake of his wives. Even though the Lord had come to him directly, and this led directly to the loss of the kingdom. Of course, Jesus plans to do the same thing. He says the queen of the south will arise with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but there is something greater than Solomon here. She will no doubt judge them as Solomon was judged so soon after her meeting with him. As an adulterer, who turned against his own wisdom, who turned against his own God. Okay, so what the heck does all of this have to do with us? A lot, I think. I recently worked with a group of high school students, and I was surprised to see how closed-minded they were. And by closed-minded, I mean that they were unwilling to challenge the assumptions they already had about the church and about secularism. Their minds were made up, and they were not going to budge. This is probably developmentally appropriate, and no doubt they will hit the kind of intellectual crisis that happens around age 18 or 19 to so many of us and reconfigure their certainties like we did. But then, if they're like many of us, they'll trade their old certainties for new ones and won't challenge those ones for years to come. This is the disease of ideology, and it's a disease we all suffer from, whether conservative or liberal. We so badly want to make truth clear and understandable that we reduce it to the size of our own cognition and refuse any mystery that challenges us. But that is a dangerous thing to do. We could very easily wind up like the Pharisees in a place where the Son of God himself can visit us and our ideology is so strong, we will reject God himself in favor of our false certainties. Or worse, we could die with our ideological closed-mindedness and then discover that Jesus is either not conservative in the way we favor or not liberal in the way we are comfortable with and wind up rejecting him out of hand. We need to take the sign of Jonah to heart and imitate the Queen of Sheba and be willing to go out from our intellectual comfort zone and see things from God's perspective. For starters, we need to realize that God has in mind reaching people that are far removed from our own safe circle of friends. I work in a university. I was converted at a university. I love reading the stories of talented intellectuals who have been converted by Christianity, well, from Saul of Tarsus all the way to Evelyn Waugh. But in the beginning, the Lord chose fishermen, ordinary blue-collar people, not intellectuals. He called fishermen before he called Paul. In our own time, he reached workers with Catholic social teaching before he reached intellectuals with Gaudium et Spes. Christianity is something for ordinary blue-collar people even today, and its great heroes worldwide today, from the underground church in China to the martyrs of North Africa, are working-class people. We shouldn't make the mistake Jonah made. Jonah didn't want to travel to Nineveh to preach repentance to the city folk. But that was where the people who needed to repent were. Fishermen go where the fish are, not where they like to float their boat. Jesus sends his emissaries to where the people are, not to where we like to hang out. Later, we will learn that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners instead of model citizens. 
Here we learn that he wants to reach the world's rough and untidy people, not perfect pious types, and that these are the people who will make an impact. In fact, in the beginning, all the trouble in God's creation started with Lucifer's refusal to be humble enough to pay homage to a mere woman, who he considered too far beneath him. Jesus chose people from the working classes because he knew that they wouldn't hold back. They could see that all people are precious. In a way, I think God uses animals to teach us the same lesson. Adam in the garden was a friend to the animals, as he named them. Noah gathered the animals as part of his rescue mission for creation. And Jonah in the whale and Daniel in the lion's den had to rely on animals in the same way. They faced destruction by animals, but found deliverance through faith. We face the same fight in the spiritual life, with our animal nature threatening our spiritual progress. But God uses our very appetites for bread, for water, for rest, in order to help us reach him. St. Thomas Aquinas quotes St. Remigius, who said that we all have to become like Jonah or like Solomon, by becoming fishers of men. He said, by becoming fishers of men, the apostles, quote, draw a fish, that is men, from the depths of the sea, that is, of infidelity, to the light of faith. Wonderful indeed is this fishing, for fishes, when they are caught, soon after die. But men, when they are caught by the word of preaching, they rather are made alive." End quote. Does that sound like Jonah? He was caught by a fish and lived to catch men. We all think that if we go outside our comfort zone, we will be swallowed whole by forces we don't understand. But like the Queen of Sheba, we need to be open-minded about wisdom from afar. And like Jonah, we have to realize that the Lord isn't simply here to make us smarter. He's here to recruit us. And it isn't enough to know who he is. We need to be willing to identify whoever will listen and tell and retell his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.